when science is done right, who says it is irrelevant. Where an idea comes from is irrelevant. There's no such thing as Western science, just like there's no such thing as the Western multiplication table. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Stephen Pinker. Stephen is the Johnstone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. He is a cognitive psychologist, psycholinguist, science author and public intellectual. He researches visual cognition and developmental linguistics and is an advocate of evolutionary psychology and the computational theory of mind. He has also taught at Stanford University and MIT. Stephen is an elected member of the American National Academy of Sciences, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, a humanist of the year, a recipient of nine honorary doctorates, and has been named by foreign policy magazines, World's Top 100 Public Intellectuals, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World Today, and Prospect Magazine's Top 10 World Thinkers. Stephen has won awards from the American Psychological Association, the National Academy of Sciences, the Royal Institution, the Cognitive Neuroscience Society, and the American Humanist Association. He has served on the editorial boards of a variety of journals and on the advisory boards of several institutions. Also, he was chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. Stephen has authored eight books, The Language Instinct, How the Mind Works, Words and Rules, The Blank Slate, The Stuff of Thought, The Sense of Style, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Enlightenment Now, and his latest volume, Rationality. In this podcast, Stephen talks about his beloved teacher, Emeritus Professor Michael Corbelis, who taught Stephen at McGill University in Canada in the 1970s. Stephen defines what science and knowledge are, whether knowledge is proprietary or open source, and responds to quotes from a recent open letter published by a group of leading New Zealand scientists to counter a letter to the editor penned by Professor Michael Corbelis and six other distinguished New Zealand professors. For more detailed context, please see the show notes outlining the events leading to this discussion. And now I give you Stephen Pinker. So welcome to The Shape of Dialogue, Stephen. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great having you on. Okay, uh, to start, can you please tell us how you know Professor Michael Corbelis and talk about his scientific work and what type of person he was? Oh, my goodness. Uh, Mike Corbelis uh, was a professor at McGill before I was a student in, in, in McGill University in Montreal, my hometown, I, when I applied to McGill, I went to a faculty student mixer in which uh, Mike was there and I asked him, uh, as I, I, I think I was 18 years old, uh, if cognitive psychology was, uh, if he thought that, that it was a growing field and, and he said, oh yes, it's a, uh, an exciting field, a growing field, uh, and encouraged me to major in it. And uh, for me, the rest was history. I uh, 
specialized in cognitive psychology. I'm a cognitive psychologist today. I took statistics with Mike Corbelis at McGill University in 1974. I still have my notes. I still refer to them, including many of the, the uh, jokes that he made, some of which I have stolen when I teach statistics and methods. In my most recent book, Rationality, I uh, credit Mike with having anticipated some of the statistical fallacies that have led to the replicability crisis in social science. He identified them for the benefit of the class back in 1974. He called it data snooping, namely uh, when you choose your statistical test after you already know what the data look like. And he emphasized that this was a, uh, a sin, a, a route to error. And uh, uh, it, he, he didn't. He, it wasn't he who discovered it. This was well known among statisticians. But he, he drove it home in a way that I remember uh, 47 years later and uh, as a lesson that many of my colleagues ought to have taken more seriously. But it wasn't just statistics, because my thesis research was in uh, visual and spatial cognition, of which Mike was a pioneer. In particular, he raised the question of what is the difference between right and left? There's nothing to do with liberal and conservative politics, but we are symmetrical. How does a symmetrical organism distinguish right from left? How do we distinguish mirror images given that all of their geometry except for their handedness is identical? It turns out to be a, a profound question with implications for physics and philosophy and geometry. Uh, Mike wrote a book called The Psychology of Right and Left, which probably owed a lot of its sales to the fact that people confused it with a treatise on political psychology. Uh, but he was, uh, he was an expert in that fascinating topic and uh, his wit as both a lecturer and a uh, scientific writer have stayed with me. I rem do remember that when he would give us examples of independent and dependent variables in various designs in psychology, his go-to example was always uh, an experimenter who, who visited several types of indignities on his subjects. Indignity A, indignity B, indignity C, and the dependent variable was the level of anger in the subjects. That was his uh, standard example. And, and in a um, paper on the process of mental rotation, that is when we turn an object over in the mind's eye, um, he had a paper that was entitled, What's Up in Mental Rotation? Which had the double meaning of uh, what does the latest research show, but also the literal meaning of uh, how do we assign the top of an object before we have mentally rotated it so that we know in what direction to rotate it. So a clever title of uh, an interesting topic in our uh, spatial psychology. And uh, that, that's just a taste of the delights in Mike Corbelis's research and teaching programs. Right. So you obviously rate him very highly as a scientist. Uh, I do. I'll, I'll, I will. I can't avoid throwing in one more uh, anecdote since we are speaking to a New Zealand audience. Is that that another one of his students, um, a decade later, an undergraduate, um, then went on to. Uh, to, to study and do research in Boston, and I married her. So my, my second wife, Ilvaino Subaya, was also a student of Mike Corbelis's, and he told her to look me up when she got to Boston. So I, I, owe, I owe the late 
Professor Corbelis a lot. Right. Okay. So he's a matchmaker and a scientist. But, but the answer is yes, he is a major scientist, not only in the um, study, including the experimental study of the distinction, the, the distinction of handedness, of, of a chirality or enantiomorphs or right and left versions, profound issue, but in, and in spatial cognition. But also he wrote on human evolution in uh, a, a series of of uh, witty and, and uh, deep books on um, how language evolved. He um, speculated or revived the hypothesis that sign languages were an intermediate stage and uh, characteristically titled the, the book with a, uh, a witticism, hand to mouth. Uh, he um, also was an expert on what makes people right-handed or left-handed separate question from how we distinguish right and left-handed versions of shapes in the world. Right. Well, I met him twice, and it's quite bizarre. I only met him online twice. And it's amazing how, uh, how much loss I feel, even after having met him twice. So, yeah, it's very sad that he's passed. Tremendous um, charm and wit and ur urbanity and elegance. Uh, really an yeah. admirable human being. Yeah, a great guy. Now, let's rip into sort of the heart of, of what this podcast is all about, which is what is science? Can you answer that question? Well, science is the attempt to um, explain the world and to uh, verify whether your explanations are true or not. And how does it differ from other forms of explaining the world? It's, um, well, it comes to the same impulse. We are, psychologists often say that we're all intuitive scientists, that babies are intuitive scientists. We seek um, hidden causes and forces to explain the uh, phantasmagoria of experience. What what form what differentiates formal science is that it just does it goes much deeper and um, goes much farther to verifying whether its explanations are uh, correct or not. So it's not um, a different enterprise than than what we might call say folk science or intuitive science, but it just carries it many orders of magnitude farther. Yeah, I think what I'm talking about is, is the distinction between say science. Um, and let's take a, sort of a, an opposite example, religion, and, and how, how science differs, differs from those ways of knowing. Well, some of what we call religion is um, you know, obsolete science. That is, there are, it does have explanations for natural phenomena, such as the origin of the planet and of the solar system and of the, uh, the, the cosmos. They're just, we now know them to be uh, incorrect science, bad science. I mean, for, forgivably, if uh, it was done thousands of years ago before there were instruments or mathematical tools, it was the best they could do. Less forgivably if people take them literally today. Right. So it, you're almost saying it's part of the same spectrum um, of, of the inclination of the human humans to find out about their world. Yes, and it, it, the, uh, the probably the, the, the major difference is that the uh, the concerted attempt to verify the, the, the veracity of the explanations, to consider every explanation to be 
tentative and subject to potential falsification is what differentiates what we today continue to call religion from science. I mean, they, they did try to explain natural phenomena, you know, whether it's Zeus hurling thunderbolts or, 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 uh, or, or God created heavens and the earth. Uh, but they are, in religion, they're often protected from falsification, whereas in science, as soon as something is proposed, it is a target for falsification. Right. So everything is up for question, no matter who says it. When science is done right, um, who says it is uh, irrelevant. Uh, where an idea comes from is irrelevant. There's no such thing as Western science, uh, just like there's no such thing as the Western multiplication table. That, that's a, a white crack that I, I stole from um, Anton Chekhov, by the way. Right, okay. Yeah, so, so science is, you're saying science is not Western. No. And where did it come from? It, it, uh, all over. It's eclectic. Uh, anyone can play. Um, your ideas are uh, welcome, but subject to empirical testability, just like everyone else's. Uh, and the, the idea that science is, is, is Western is both historically inaccurate, since so much was Arabic and Chinese and, and uh, Indian, um, but also so many ideas coming out of the West were so floridly anti-scientific. The idea that that equates science with the West is gives the West far too much credit. Right. Well, I, I, one of my questions lower down, I'll, I'll, I'll do it now though, but is, um, is it science if you're saying you're doing science, but subsequently it turns out not to be science? So, so for example, eugenics, uh, Ptolemaic astronomy, alchemy, that sort of well, thing. Well, eugenics was not science because it was a political program. It wasn't an attempt to understand the world. It was a policy. Um, so it wasn't a theory. Um, Ptolemaic um, uh, uh, astronomy and, and cosmology, I, I, I think we it's probably called an incorrect scientific theory, but it did have a number of the, the hallmarks of science. It was an attempt to understand the, the, uh, the world. Uh, and there were, uh, yeah, so there's... Um, no sharp dividing line between science and, and non-science, especially when it comes to hypotheses that happen to be mistaken, uh, but may have been offered in a spirit, in the right spirit of scientific explanation and testability, but just had the, the bad luck of being wrong. Yeah. Well, I think alchemy is interesting because it was completely wrong, but didn't it lead to the introduction of chemistry? Yeah, and, and alchemy was a combination of uh, a, uh, a technological goal to, to con convert base metals into gold uh, and a theory of, of uh, chemistry, of what we would today call chemistry, that is of the composition of, of uh, material substances. Yeah, so in, in a sense, it's a process from going from wrong to right. Yeah, uh, and we never know when we've gotten there. Yeah. I mean, I always say you have to be wrong before you're right, generally. Yeah, and you know, you never know when that is. You have increased confidence that you're more right than you used to be. But, um, but, but it, indeed, it is a process. That's right. So you, you can actually die thinking you're right, but it actually turns out you're wrong. I, I, that that yeah. happens a lot, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what, are the, what, what I've written down here is what, how I 
um, think of science as a set of protocols and methodologies to determine fact from fiction. Yeah, I, I would go beyond that because it's not just fact. It's not just a long list of facts, but it's really a, an attempt to uh, an explanation. I think that is crucial. Right. That is, you don't just recite what you see, but you search for deeper mechanisms and principles underneath the surface variety of experience. Mm. But explanation, I can ex explain the world and just be making it up. You can explain the world from a scientific perspective. Now, I would say you'd be right and I'd be wrong. Well, yes. Um, the, the, um, so, it's more, so it's more than just explanation. No, no, that's right. No, explanation is an yeah. ingredient. But I, I would say the two strands are explanations that are deeper than just surface appearance and the, um, the program of determining whether those explanations are true or false. Right. Yeah. Okay, next question is that I've written down to comment on this. Is science a dynamic system practiced by mere mortals with their own idiosyncrasies who have limited intellect, resources, and time, and does it reduce the influence of such human limitations? Uh, that, that's your characterization of science? No, no. I, well, I suppose it is. It's, it's, a, it's a, a, a process, again, going back to the, the term protocols, that um, l limits our foibles. Yes, our absolutely, absolutely. Limits our limitations. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a, a uh, reasonably famous saying by Richard Feynman that the first imperative in science is not to fool yourself because you are the uh, easiest to fool. Yeah. But yes, yeah. Uh, and and a lot of, of what we call the scientific method is just workarounds for a number of our cognitive biases. That is, we have a lot of explanations intuitively feel right to us, but um, but that that's no. Uh, guarantee that they are right, and what the sci what so-called scientific method is, and it probably isn't any such thing as a sci as the scientific method, but it's just whatever it takes to uh, uh, make our beliefs as true as possible, pushing back against all of our uh, intuitions that will lead us into mistaken beliefs. How much of science is pseudoscience? Um, well, there is sort of a dumb question, but you know, yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess uh, I don't want to fall back on, you know, say, by definition, none. Um, but how much of what people call science is pseudoscience? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to. Uh, how uh, yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, again, one, I thought, one, wants to, yeah. one wants to be you know, charitable toward the enterprise of, of science and not say that just because you're wrong, you're practicing pseudoscience because, right. you know, most of our ideas are probably going to be wrong in one way or another. Um, and that doesn't yeah. make it pseudoscience. But I guess the, uh, probably the distinction would be, is there um, kind of an honest attempt to um, establish the veracity of your opinions? And is it, is it a... Uh, are, are you using the totality of, of knowledge that we have and seeking more in order to uh, to test your ideas? That's probably the biggest thing that distinguishes science from pseudoscience. It can't just be whether you're right or wrong, because scientists are often wrong, and a lot of the things that we call science right today, no doubt, will be proven to be wrong in the, in the future. 
Yeah, well, another thing I say, you tell me what you think of this, is science is a process of getting most things wrong and some things right. Well, yes, and uh, that, that, that probably is true. There is a, I have a quotation in, in Rationality apropos the replication crisis that... Uh, uh, Sorry, can you just explain the replication crisis to the oh, audience? Oh, that um, refers to the fact that a number of highly publicized scientific claims in particularly in some domain in, in epidemiology uh, in public health uh, in social psychology in uh, human genetics um, turns out if you other people try to do the same experiment they don't get the result uh, the, the the finding like um, if you stand like wonder woman with your legs apart and your uh, your your fists clenched yeah you'll have more confidence and higher testosterone levels. It happened once, uh, other people tried to get it to happen and, and they didn't. Or you read a yeah. bunch of words pertaining to uh, old age and you walk more slowly out of the lab. Uh, that Some of the findings that were too good to be true were too good to be true. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that woman give that TED talk about standing in a powerful pose. Yeah. And being, you know, thinking, oh, well, it's TED talk. It must be true. Yeah. It's quite interesting. <laughs> I have it, heard you know, subsequently. To be, and to be, to be fair to her, it's, uh, it, it runs deeper than most scientists anticipated for reasons that Mike Corbelis taught me 47 years ago. Uh, right. But um, apropos uh, that, uh, the, uh, if, a physicist said, 80% of what's in physics journals is false. 80% of what's in physics textbooks is true. Uh, name, and of course, textbooks are what filter out the findings that do survive right. the test of time. Uh, and that's physics. Forget social, everyone knows that social psychology is, is a squishy science. One would say <laughs> not a science. But he was saying about yeah. physics. And so it's... Um, so in the kind of the rough and tumble, the, the debates, the controversies, the replication failures, knowledge really does accumulate. We really did have enough know-how to develop vaccines for COVID in less than a year and to invent smartphones and to take pictures yeah. of, uh, of, uh, of our planet from, from, from the, the neighborhood of Saturn. Yeah, one pixel. Yeah, they, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, um, I was going to ask you something else, it's just gone from my mind. But anyway, uh, let's move on. What is knowledge? Well, the, the standard definition in philosophy is justified true belief. Uh, there's a lot of debate. And, you know, philosophers are very good at trying to find exotic exceptions. Well, here's something that's true and believed, but it's not justified. We call it knowledge, and it's justified in belief, but not true. And but it's not a bad definition. Yeah. I actually just remembered what I was going to say was in, in part of my research for this. I was looking at the history of scientific discoveries, you know, scientific events. And not only are we accumulating knowledge, but it's happening at an increasing rate. So if you go through the list, you know, back in the day, you know, 2000 BC, you know, there's only a few things. You go even just to this century, it's an enormous amount of knowledge. So it's, it's exponential. Oh, yes. And it's, uh, as a practicing scientist, it's terrifying. <laughs> I know. It students, must be. There were, there, were, there were two journals in my field, and now there are probably a dozen. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's like being a 
bit like being a doctor. How do you keep up? Yeah. Okay. Are there different types of knowledge? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, surely history and science and uh, um, um, social science, philosophy, all would qualify as forms of knowledge, but they are, uh, they're, they're, they're different, although they, uh, I mean, I would say that they have to be mutually compatible. Um, I endorse the ideal sometimes called consilience of the unity of knowledge, uh, namely that uh, his, history is the, 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 the record of, of uh, human activity. Human activity is made possible by a human brain. The human brain is made possible by human genes, which were selected over the course of evolution, which is uh, a, a physical, chemical process. So uh, there are different levels of analysis that make different kinds of knowledge uh, appear qualitatively different, but they are all uh, connected. Yeah, they're all knowledge in the sense that they tell us something about the world. And, um, and going back to your term, justified belief, um, but in a sense, they're different categories of knowledge. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and again, it would take many philosophy seminars could be devoted to questions like, is there such a thing as moral knowledge? Is there such a thing as artistic knowledge? Um, yeah, I, I will. I will replicate those dis discussions right now. Yeah. Okay. Next question: Is knowledge proprietary or open source? Well, it 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 um, when it comes to science, it really ought to be open source. It's considered one of one of the founding ideals of science that knowledge is communal. That's not true for you know, trade secrets, for manufacturing, um, uh, patents, and so on. But when it comes to science, uh, there often are some uh, intense pushback when certain branches of science attempt to make things proprietary, such as patenting a gene. Uh, and right. Yeah. Fierce debates. That just you know, not not something you should be able to do. Yeah. So so you're saying science is open is an open source protocol. Yeah. It it it, it had better be. Yeah. Yeah. And just touching on that, you know, things like trade secrets technology patents that's really um just limited in time by after yeah. i can't remember what the, the period of time is so 25 years or 50 years it's open source yes so so you have 17 you know, in the United States. yeah yeah exactly yeah okay um is knowledge delineated by ethnicity and cultural background um and I'll just, sorry, I'll continue with the next question because they're related. Can different cultures and ethnicities lay claim to proprietary knowledge about the world? For example, only a prescribed subset of humanity are privy to a particular type of knowledge. Well, I, not, uh, you know, I would say not inherently and not if knowledge is used in a strict sense that differentiates it from belief. That is, if, not, if knowledge is justified true belief, then uh, anyone, anyone can have it. Um, if it's sometimes knowledge is used for belief held with high confidence, belief held on uh, faith, uh, you know, in that case, it can be proprietary, but it would not be knowledge in the, the, the technical sense of justified true belief. 
Right. Okay, I'm going to get you to comment on following statements from an open letter that was signed by over a thousand academics and university staff from New Zealand and around the world to counter the seven professors' uh, letter to the editor entitled In Defence of Science. I don't, I don't know, did you have time to read the open response to In Defence of Science? Um, I, I read the, no, I, ha- I have not. Okay, well, that's right. Uh, these basically, yeah, these are um, quotes from the open response to the uh, professor's letter. So here we go. And I'll just get you to respond to them and tell me um, your thoughts. Do indigenous ways of knowing, including Maltaranga, which is, um, is traditional Māori knowledge, include methodologies that overlap with in quotes, Western understanding, understandings of the scientific method. Um, you know, I, I don't know enough about the the um, that particular um, belief system to, to answer definitively. It, it might, um, but doesn't yep. by definition. But it, it could. Yep. Okay. Um, Mautaranga is far more than equivalent to or equal to in quotes Western science. It offers ways of viewing the world that are unique and complementary to other knowledge systems. Well, they're, they, they might be complementary in the in the sense that, you know, um, our artistic uh, works may be complementary to scientific understanding for, say, appreciating the, the, the vastness of time or the diversity of life. Um, they're complementary in, 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 in that sense, but they're, they're, they're very different. They're not a variety of science, or at least... <clears throat> they aren't by definition. They, uh, it, it, it is eminently possible that traditional belief systems uh, come across um, or discover statements about reality that turn out to be um, uh, correct, that turn out to be truthful. And of course, we do know that uh, science has validated many um, uh, traditional uh, medicinal remedies, um, species delineations, often taxonomies of species uh, in, in, uh, among the people turn out to be, to correspond to the Linnaean taxonomy. Um, so they can, but it's ultimately the best science that tells us whether they are or not. It's a mistake, again, I think it's a mistake to call it Western science. If it's branded as Western, then it is not science, because science can come from anywhere, and it's, uh, it, it has, no, um, it has no, no, no nationality, it has no religion, it is just our best way of knowing. There's no such thing as Western science, in fact. No, I mean, some of the ideas came from the West, and some came from the East, uh, and it's practiced most um, energetically in, in the West. It was developed, it happened, a lot of it happened to be developed in the West, often in defiance of beliefs that were widely held in the West continue to be. Uh, so the fact everything has to be somewhere. So a, lot, <laughs> so a lot of science happens to take place in the West. The West can afford it. A lot of science is expensive. Uh, but a lot that happens in the West is, is not at all scientific. And a lot of science came, did not come from the West. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, the professors claim that, in quotes, science itself does not colonize, end quote, ignoring the fact that 
colonization, racism, misogyny, and eugenics have each been championed by science by scientists wielding a self-declared monopoly on universal knowledge? Well, it's uh, in fact, the biggest proponents of eugenics were not scientists, but were often literary intellectuals like George Bernard Shaw or uh, political editorialists like Sidney and Beatrice Webb or feminist activists like uh, Margaret Sanger. Uh, so I think that statement is historically uh, false. Eugenics also was not itself a scientific theory. It was a political program, one that was highly popular in the, uh, in, in the left, among the leftist intellectuals in the first decades of the 20th century. Colonization uh, was certainly not done by the scientific establishment, although uh, many scientists obviously were complicit with some of the wrongs of uh, colonialism, as, as uh, people of that era were complicit. Uh, in every profession, including science, but it wasn't as if the um, colonization was spearheaded as a scientific endeavor. It was an attempt to get uh, resources and territory and, and uh, uh, enslaved people. Uh, scientists certainly took part, as did everyone in that era. Yeah, well, um, a question I have at the bottom of, of my page was, was science the principal philosophical underpinning of colonialization? So essentially you're saying no. No, and, and of course, imperial expansion is as old as civilization. Um, every every uh, um, ancient civilization conquered territory, otherwise we probably wouldn't call it a civilization. Um, and uh, so I, I think it's, a, it's an anachronistic attribution. Right. Now, I'm very cognizant of your time. We've gone half an hour. Um, are we, are we, do you have any more time? Um, do you, do well, you another, another, another couple of minutes, sure. Okay, okay. Well, um, I'll just quickly, I think it's important to go over the, some of these statements as well. Um, so science has long been ex Sorry, science has long excluded indigenous peoples from participation, preferring them as subjects for study and exploitation. Diminishing the role of indigenous knowledge systems is simply another tool for exclusion and exploitation. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems uh, to be um, a, a, very, a, a very aggressive and antagonistic um, way of putting a number of facts that are indisputable. There was exploitation of indigenous peoples by every Western institution. It was deplorable. We uh, you know, ought to um, uh, ought to recognize it for for what it is. I don't think science um, played any outsized role compared to every other institution in uh, in the societies that that did engage in imperialism, which is pretty much all major societies. Uh, whether indigenous people were excluded or whether indigenous people just never had the opportunity, were never properly given the opportunity, is uh, you know, a question for historians to uh, examine. Uh, but it's, uh, and to the extent that there was exclusion, that is a deplorable practice that ought to be um, condemned and, um, and, and stopped. Uh, there is every reason to believe that uh, it's, it's an ideal that everyone should. Uh, participate in science to the um, uh, and that people should be given the education that allows them to participate 
people from all, all cultures. That is inherent to the practice of science, that it is not rooted in a particular class or ethnicity or language. It's, uh, it's open to everyone. If in the past it wasn't, that was because of uh, historical circumstances that led Indigenous people to be excluded from um, most prestigious walk, uh, walks of life in um, major uh, societies. And not just Western, by the way, because it's not as if Chinese and uh, Indian and African empires were particularly welcoming of minority ethnic groups either, or of the, the peoples that they uh, conquered uh, who were numerous. If you just look at a map of ancient empires, they were huge and they didn't start out huge. Yeah. But the, 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 the powers or the powers and powers tend to be hegemonic, don't they? They, they tend to exclude historically. Anyway, the, Professors present a series of global crises that we must battle, in quotes, with science, again failing to acknowledge the ways in which science has contributed to the creation of these challenges. Putting science on a pedestal gets us no further in the solution of these crises. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's obviously nonsense. Uh, it's only science that's going to allow us to deal with, uh, say, climate change. It's science that allowed us to discover climate change, the fact of it, and it's science and technology that are going to allow us to uh, maintain all of the benefits of industrialization, such as a, a lifespan that was um, more than doubled, such as massive declines in famine, in child mortality, the uh, opening of opportunities to uh, to women, the luxury of having children in school instead of in the fields. All of these are gifts of industrialization fueled by scientific knowledge. And it's going to be science that's going to allow us to continue these enormous benefits to human well-being without the, uh, the, the terrible costs to the environment that science is now uh, identifying for us. Uh, so if science is just the attempt to understand the world and uh, with explanations that are factually correct, then uh, the alternative, namely not understanding how the world works or uh, basing your understanding on ideas that are incorrect, certainly aren't going to get us out of these problems. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to end it. Okay. Um, I would I would love to go on for hours, but um, <laughs> I think you're a busy man, so we won't. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, it's an amazing honor to speak to you in person. Um, it does feel very strange. It feels like I'm talking to a TV set because I've watched <laughs> thousands of hours of you <laughs> and interviews and lectures and all sorts of things. So uh, it's, it's great. Okay, well, thank my, you very much. Pleasure to speak with you. So long. Thank you.